0: With the outcome of the general election, we find ourselves in a position unknown to this generation of political leaders with no single party able to have a commons majority and therefore have a majority government.
1: That's Gordon Brown outside 10 Downing Street on Friday, May the 7th, 2010, the day after the general election. A general election that would lead to the creation of the coalition government led by David Cameron. That same week, Miles Roberts started as Chief Executive of DS Smith. In the 13 years since then, the world has changed dramatically. But Miles Roberts is still Chief Executive of DS Smith, making him one of the longest-serving bosses in the FTSE 100 and someone who has overseen an extraordinary transformation of his company and the humble cardboard box. I'm Graeme Ruddick, and this is Business Studies, a podcast that takes a second look at business stories from the past. In this episode, we speak to Miles Roberts about how he has transformed DS Smith. It's gone from an industrial conglomerate selling plastics and office supplies to one focused entirely on recyclable packaging. In the process, its workforce has been expanded from 5,000 to more than 30,000 and where once it had 80% of its sales in the UK, now it's just 10%. And its share price has quadrupled. So today, it's a FTSE 100 company worth more than £4 billion.
0: When we sort of came together and were in the company, you know, really talking to everybody and seeing where the opportunities were, then it became pretty evident, you know, pretty quickly that We just have to get out of some businesses that were just going to go nowhere and potentially could drag the company down, uh, which we sold. And we're delighted we sold them. And then it's all a question of where do you grow? And it's the blank sheet of paper, isn't it? It's the where do you grow? It's very easy to criticise where you are, but it's where do you lay your bets? You know, what does the future look like? That's the bit that is... um, you know, you see some companies, you know, doing some amazing things and they look forward and they make mistakes, but of course they do. But you're always looking forward you know, that, that sort of spirit of, um, you know, this is what we think is right. It makes, we think we make good returns for our shareholders. You know, now for the last um, 12 years, I mean, our packaging business is eight, nine times larger than it was. It's come a long way.
1: One of the things you have spoken about in previous results is is supply chains and the security of your supply Absolutely. chains, which obviously over the last couple of years for multinational businesses has been it's been a challenge. But but you've emphasised the security of yours. Absolutely. Do you do you think that's a risk that other businesses underestimate?
0: Well, look, it's we supply food and basically the big food and drink companies. Food doesn't last, well, some of it does, but a lot of it doesn't. Uh, it's perishable. And also they're facing a consumer that's constantly changing their demand. So therefore, you know, we have a number of KPIs. The first thing we obviously look at is our health and safety. And after that is into customer service and responsiveness. And I think we're very good at that. And the reason I say that is because our customers tell us we are. Mm. So we remain remaining extremely close to the customer. We don't produce for stock. We produce to order. So that responsiveness is extremely important. But that takes the company to be able to work together. Because if you've got a big customer, they could want something. But it's never going to be from one factory. It's going to be from a lot of factories at the same time. And if one of them doesn't meet that objective, then effectively you failed. So that comes back to the culture in the organization, the processes, that if you work in one part of the company, in fact, you're part of a team somewhere else. And so we put a lot of emphasis on this, you know, what what are the behaviors you want to see? What are the processes and the structure that support that uh, to make sure that we deliver, you know, what our customers want? And I think that gives us a point of difference. And we've seen it during COVID. We've seen when the supply chains were really put under pressure, we delivered. And therefore, we took market share because of the service. And we've continued to take share. We've we've significantly increased the proportion of our business with large customers. And these customers are extremely demanding. You know, we're pleased they are. And the service, the quality, the rate of new product innovation, how we work with our supply chain and the governance around that, that they can be sure that we are working in the right way. We're not buying from... You know, sanctioned countries, you know, we don't buy from Russia. Never have done. We don't have anything in Russia. We never have done. You know, are you you buying from suppliers who could have child labour there? We have huge sort of governance and processes around that our customers can be confident that we'll supply them, but also supply them in the right way with that right strength of our supply chain. So in this Ukraine, the Russians invasion, the Ukraine came out with a lot of customers, what does that mean for you? Do We don't work, we don't buy from we've done, nobody there, there'll be no issue at all. You know, we've, we've just always tried to have short supply chains and real robustness there, purely because our customers have those demands themselves. You know, if it's raining Monday, shoppers buy different food than if it, the sun's shining. I mean, they do, and therefore we've got to respond. Uh, very very quickly
1: another area where I think you seem to work with customers is innovation mm. and, and working with them mm. in terms of evolving mm. and, and obviously mm. the cardboard box uh, may not for some mm. seem to be a hub of innovation but actually it is mm. and you've mm. made an incredible number of changes over the last few mm. years could you just talk about some of the things that you've sort of done and mm. changed with customers mm. over the years
0: absolutely so you know there's been a whole number of changes I mean I think I think the first thing is that a lot of people, when they go into a retailer, they don't actually know the exact product they're going to buy. They say, I want to buy, I want to buy some cereal and they'll go in and they'll see what's there and they'll have a look and they'll see what's on promotion. They see what isn't. And you'll find that a huge number of people just go in with the product rather than the actual brand, etc. So, the importance of packaging and how the product is presented can have a significant effect on the rate of sale. And so, the importance of packaging, making sure the packaging presents the product at the front of the shelf, as an example, to make sure that the the box around it looks good. It, it, it is how you want the product to be uh, uh, to be presented. To make sure that you've got what we call shelf ready packaging that allows the shelf to be replenished by just sliding a box on there with perhaps eight or ten or twelve of the products. So it's very easy to replenish. So the so the shelf is always stocked. So the importance of packaging, but then of course it's it's about that's on the display, but then it's all the way through the supply chain. How does our packaging run through their lines. Our packaging works with their product at every stage of the manufacture, the delivery, the presentation, until it's bought. It stays with our customer's product. So how does it flow through their supply chains? You know, we worked with one customer years ago. We now do all of their business. And we said to him, you do realize that the cost of the line breakdowns, because the packaging you're using isn't great quality, mm. costs you more than the packaging. Well, you know, you're asking us, you know, come in here and you're talking about the price. I mean, the price package, packaging, in fact, is irrelevant. It's breaking down. Your line downtime is more than your packaging. In fact, it's over double the cost of the packaging. So how can we work with you and your machine supplies and actually get packaging that works through your lines? And then, of course, you've got the much wider debates about packaging itself. What happens to it afterwards? You know, is it is it? You know plastics and all these other things end up in landfill or, or sort of incineration, which I think we can all see. You know the the very negative effects of that. So it really does touch. So when you go and talk to our customers, it will be you know the marketing departments, their sales departments, it's the operations department, it's their sustainability part, it's their whole sort of brand and corporate image, and it's just changed hugely over the years. You know they've got lots of examples. We saw a you know, massive confectionery company with a group CEO talking about what we're doing. He said, uh, yeah, yeah, I know. He said, you know, my biggest issue is on the social, social media is our is the wrappers of our product just washing up on beaches. That's our biggest issue. And he was saying, it's packaging. That is his biggest issue. Not even way to say that. That is it. And it's packaging. obviously, we make fiber-based packaging. We don't have any of those issues for them at all. But it's quite interesting. You know, the group CSE is number one issue. And what you're doing is what I want to see throughout all of our packaging. What else can you do for us to help to stop this problem? Because it's all fiber-based. We've got a big recycling division. We actually collect and recycle more packaging than we make because we think that's the right thing to do. So he's saying, how can we track and see exactly where our packaging is going? Because we cannot have this problem. We cannot have our brand with our name on it lying on a beach in the uh, in the Caribbean Seychelles or whatever. I mean, it's killing the brand. So that shows the importance. And we need to meet those. We need to meet their objectives. You know, That's what we need to do.
1: By focusing on recyclable packaging, DS Smith has put sustainability and environmental issues at the heart of its success in recent years. This means Miles Roberts is an ideal person to ask about how he sees the challenges facing the world and businesses today.
0: Well, I think we're, we're, at the, we're still in the, the foothills of the whole sustainability uh, debate. And people can see. They can feel the change in the environment. Now there's a there's a question in people's mind: Is this permanent or not? But you know, just look. We're sitting here in London. I mean, look at last summer. It was 40 degrees. I mean, <laughs> I mean it's 40 degrees. It's never been 40 degrees ever before. It's 40 degrees. It was above 30 every day. You know, for weeks on end. And I think people are. Oh, hang on a bit. You know, what is this? So that's the issue with carbon. But then you've also got the issue about the actual product that you make and where does it come from? What happens afterwards? Does it go into landfill? Is it incinerated or is it reused? Is it recycled? Because there are quite a few issues with, you know, the landfill and, you know, the dumping of rubbish and dumping of used product. Um, if it's not immediately visible to you with social media, you can see where, where, where it has gone into and you know where where rubbish has been dumped. And countries outside of the EU and North America say, well, hang on, we're just not taking it anymore. I mean, we're just not taking the West rubbish and dumping it here. Frankly, I completely understand what they're saying. So we have to deal with it. And we haven't really dealt with it. There's a long, long way to go. And I think the legislators are aware of this. We're seeing in the EU, we're seeing a lot of legislation coming through banning single-use plastics, whether it's wrapping food, say in France, you're not allowed to wrap food, you know, single-use in plastic anymore, like an apple. You can't do that. Just just have an apple. Single-use things like single-use plastic cutlery, you know, it's, it's all being banned. They're putting more taxes on it. And most recently, they've come back and said, well, unless your product is going to be reused. I mean, if you're plastic, I mean, we just don't want this. And there have been extra taxes put on plastics as well. You know, this morning on the way in here, I was listening on the radio and they're talking about the, um, they're talking about, you know, Scotland, they've got this deposit return Mm. scheme. I mean, okay, whether it's working perfectly or not, I mean, you know, everybody's arguing about it. But the issue is we can't just have a throwaway... Society for things like plastic that end up in the ocean, and I think we're just at the foothills of it. I really do. I think um, I think the way we will consume going forward, I think, will be very different to what we've done in the past. I mean, it, it just will. If I look at my daughters, you know, I have three daughters that they, they buy virtually all their clothes secondhand. I may mean, say anything twice about it. Mm-hmm. Straight behavioral thing, you know if, if I mean, if I look at myself, I, I, don't, I don't buy second hand clothes, but then I, what I have, I tend to keep for a long time. So I've always, uh, we can see a blue suit, you know, it's not exactly the most, I'm not exactly out there in the, uh, on the, on the clothes side, but um, I, I think it will change a lot the way we consume. And I think it will be forced on people through things like legislation and awareness and cost as well. You're has a deficit on raw materials and basically has to re- reuse, recycle what it's already have. It, it it doesn't have a surplus of energy. It doesn't have a surplus of oil and hydrocarbon. It doesn't have that. It doesn't have a surplus of trees. It doesn't have that. It has to reuse what it's already used. And I think countries are getting there, but I think it's going to change a lot.
1: 100% of your materials are recyclable. Are, yes. are you happy with the amount that then gets recycled or is there also an issue there in terms of well, making sure? Well, I think sure it's a that-
0: very, very good question. And in terms of fibre, the recycling rates for fibre are, against other formats, are very high uh, across Europe. You know, in some countries they can be over 70%. But I think there's more to go. If it goes from 70 up to 80%, well, that means fewer trees are cut down. Isn't that what we all want? So it is good different countries are operating differently and there's a long way that we can go if you look in the uk as an example we have 200 different collection systems in the uk 200 you know i've just moved house recently and where i was it wasn't very far away you had one bin to put certain things in and another for your food if you go to you know i said work i spend a lot of time uh, in other countries and you know, you can have five, six, and seven bins. And you're asking the consumer just to put their waste in the appropriate, and that makes it so much easier to recycle. In the UK, putting cardboard, and then you put a sort of glass in a bottle, everything will talk. If, if you've got to unravel all of that afterwards. Somebody's got to do that, and that costs money. And, you know, people say, well, it's just not worth it. We'll just put it onto landfill. So I think, I think we can all... Um, make a, a further significant improvement
1: and looking at the uk more broadly you've spoken very eloquently about how it's a less attractive place to invest than other markets that you're in why is that
0: well we're a british company okay we start here we're headquartered here and you know the uk used to be over 80 percent of our business it's now less than 10 percent. and for manufacturing we found that Ourselves, along with a lot of other manufacturing companies, it has become more challenging to invest in the UK. So, for example, we are a heavy energy user. We say to the government, only you can determine what is our energy solution as a country over the next 20, 30 years to reach the, the net zero by 2050. As a company, we are absolutely committed to that. We're investing heavily to achieve that. But we can only invest when we understand what the government's policy is. And we don't know from the government. What is your energy solution in 2050? No, r- roughly, what is it? How much nuclear? How much wind? How much fossil fuels? There'll still be some. How much waste to any? How much hydrogen? Tell us, roughly. What, what is it? Where is it? How are you going to distribute it? And roughly, who's going to pay for it? I mean, roughly. But we don't know. So as a heavy energy user, it makes it very challenging to, you know, to commit to significant investments when we just don't know. And there's some other things as well in the UK, which I think can be, you know, can be improved. You know, the, the way capital is treated in the UK, if I employ somebody, then I write off their cost immediately to, to, in in the tax charge. But you invest. Don't forget, when you're investing in machinery, you've got a lot of outgoings. Well, you can't write that off. And you can only do a little bit. So just at the time that you're, you're spending a lot of cash, the government wants to take effectively quite a large part of that on top of that. So it, So it just makes the whole payback, the financial payback period longer. So why can't we just level the UK up with other European countries? And then, of course, the other area which we, you know, just as a manufacturer, it's it, it's around the regulation. Are we going to have a whole series of separate regulations in the UK that will then mean more barriers with our largest trading partner, which is the EU? Are we going to do that or are we going to align on a perhaps a sector basis or align around so many a, a number of things? It could be for practical reasons, it could be because actually, the legislation is very good elsewhere. If we can align, then we're not going to have double costs of working in the UK. So there are a number of things we think the government can help industry work on, and I think you know I think you'll see a, you know a lot of uh, manufacturing businesses really getting quite worried. You know, we've seen a lot of customers move out of the UK and onto the continent. We follow our customers, but obviously you want to see a strong UK manufacturing base.
1: You closed a facility in Kent last year. Yeah, yeah. Is is there other facilities that are potentially at risk?
0: Oh, absolutely, yeah. Oh yeah, without any doubt. You know, we we follow our customers. And if our customers invest in the UK, then we invest in the UK. If they move elsewhere, then we move elsewhere. And we've I mean, we're not we don't have any plans to um you know, to sort of close another factory. But if if our customers continue moving away, then we'll we'll have to follow that.
1: How, do, how does the productivity of your factories here compare to other right, countries? That's a very good question.
0: Where you have the same capital solutions, the same equipment, it is exactly the same. UK, Germany, Northern Italy, France, it is the same. The issue is the capital. And when we look at the UK's productivity issue our argument or our two pennies worth is it's because you have less capital investment here that's where the productivity is related to now why is it because you're taxing in a very different way to what other countries let's level the uk up with europe let's not fall behind and we can see when we analyze these things We can see that the paybacks in the UK typically are longer than they are on the continent because capital is treated. It's just not a good, uh, it just isn't as advantageous. But I'll say also it's this, you know, if you're going to invest, it's because you've got a market. And at the moment, the UK, you invest in the UK for the UK market, whereas you invest in France, that's for you. It's a big market, huh? We just built a brand new factory in northern Italy. It is stunning. It's an absolute world class and it sells into Germany, it sells into France, it sells into Austria. We've opened another one in in Poland. We see a fantastic new facility. It supplies into Germany, you've got Poland, so it's and it just means you've got more market to work, so you feel more confident about those investments. So there are a number of things, you know, that we, we, we can
1: think well, of. When you talk about investment and productivity, you're talking there about your own investment, or yes. you're talking about broader sort of infrastructure this is investment? Our investment. Just the company's investment. Though? Just
0: our investment. That's where we have the same solution. It's exactly the same. The issue is it's just financially, it's more challenging to work, to invest in the UK. And also you are investing for the UK market. Whereas if you invest in Belgium, you're investing for Germany. You know, you're investing for a much larger market. And, and that is an issue.
1: One of the recent challenges that DS Smith has faced in the UK was Quasi Kwarteng's mini budget in 2022. The company had to lend £100 million to its pension fund after it became clear in the chaotic aftermath of that mini budget that it needed to raise funds urgently. The pension fund didn't end up drawing down any of the 100 million, but this is what Miles Roberts had to say about what was a chaotic period.
0: Yeah, we um, we came into work and look, you know, there have been a lot of, you know, we recognise there have been a lot of changes, a lot of challenges, a lot of, sudden movements uh, over the last few years and therefore we run the company you know financially we're a bit more prudent in terms of our levels of debt and all the rest of it and we had the day when the that mini budget in the UK uh, last year and we have quite a big pension fund Uh, we have a lot of people in a pension and we guarantee their pensions I mean this is Retired people's pensions—that's what—that's all they have to live on. And by the time the then chancellor had had sat down, um, the price of gilts, the uh, the interest, or the the, the guilt rate had increased uh, significantly. Now, gilts typically are quite sort of stable, and you know we have we have a number of investments in those. So when the when the interest rate goes, the price of these things fall. It's never about one asset, it's about how an asset that you hold here relates to another asset, and you can try to minimise your, um, control your risk through effectively contracts for differences. That's effectively what it is. When the Chancellor had, I mean, the, 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 the changes were unbelievable. We then had margin calls from the counterparty on our LDIs, or so these contracts for differences that we had to settle. And rather than having our pension fund fire, sell assets to make the cash margin call that everybody was doing so the prices fell, we put in for 100 million. We had to do it that day, immediately, not, 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 not tomorrow, now. We need that money or we're going to have to fire, sell assets because of what the Chancellor's done. So we put the money in. We then saw the Bank of England came in and started buying gilts to prop the price up so it came back and we had some other liquidity in the pension fund as well so ultimately that facility was repaid uh, uh, to us but it's about safeguarding the And you'll see it in pension funds when you look at their their funding ratio that's that's where the damage is it's not it's not a headline number but it's in there and that means companies then have to pay more in the future or heaven forbid people ultimately may have a lower pension.
1: That that day, what was it like for you? I mean, did you, were you sat watching the budget and did you know as soon as the gilt markets were moving? Well, to be honest with the,
0: you, I wasn't watching the budget. We had some other meetings. I got a call from our pension chairman who said, because, you know, he has over a billion of assets and we are, it's actually our biggest creditor and these are all our ex-employees, you know, who've worked for us. And we've worked over many years to bring the deficit there right down. It's virtually, I mean, now on an accounting basis, it's actually in a small surplus so again it's guaranteeing and he called and said we we need money now he said said, you know what's happening as explained so we've got the finance director in we all sat down we discussed this you know we have no option i mean they're our biggest creditor we don't want them to fire sell assets if they did at a low price we'd have to make it up anyway we don't want anybody to we put the but we had a hundred million spare we can do that we're a big company but that's the effect when people don't think through things properly and understand the effect, you know, the wider effect on business. Now we came out of it. And our pension fund is robust and it didn't and we and we prevented it from uh, those uh, fast sales. But you know, that's a bit of a that was a bit of a known goal. I mean, let's be honest, that was a bit of a known goal as a um, you know from the government, let's be quite honest, you know.
1: Miles Roberts' journey to becoming a FTSE one hundred chief executive has taken a few twists and turns. He left school at 16 before the father of an ex-girlfriend convinced him to rethink what he was doing with his life. He went into engineering before training as an accountant and becoming finance director of Costain. He was then chief executive of cleaning products maker McBride and then joined DS Smith in 2010. Nice
0: to uh, live. Uh... Sort of around Crystal Palace, uh, and at that time, that's what uh, people did. And I and I was working. I worked for a um, uh, sort of a plaster, really dry lining. It's true. I just and a an ex girlfriend's father said to me, "What, what the hell are you doing? What on earth are you doing? It's complete waste. You got a brain in your head, you know. What, what, what are you doing? I mean, his mantra. You know, if you've got some brains, then you should you should use them. You know, you can't duck out. You've got to lean in. You've got to get involved and stuff. And so then I went back and started uh you know you get these courses and you can do a levels and stuff when uh in the evening and stuff so I did that and um you know I found I could do those things I could always do my math you know I could always uh, I could always do my math and then I so I did that and I worked again and then I, I worked for this engineering I was always interested in practical things like engineering and then I started working for this company and Wonderful company, wonderful. And then went to university and then worked for me in university and afterwards and um, studied engineering and, you know, it all sort of developed from there, really.
1: When did it become clear that you you were rising up through the ranks? Did you then want to become a CEO or a leader Um, or was it something that just happened? Well, to be honest, it's
0: something that just happens. You know, I think it's important you enjoy the work you do. You feel you're making a real difference. Was it something else actively going out? No, but circumstances change. One company, we, you know there there are some there are some issues in the company. You know the CEO left, and was at the board meeting. The board turned around and I said, "Right, we want you to be the CEO." <laughs> I said, "Well, let's let's have a think about that." And he said, um, "Well, you've got ten seconds." I said, um, "Okay." I said, fine, okay. And then we're off. Are
1: you glad you said yes? <laughs>
0: <laughs> no, it's, I mean, I was a, you know, it's another company, a fantastic chairman, um, super, super chap. Not just because he gave me the job, but just, just anyway. Uh, but oh no, it's absolutely wonderful. It's a privilege. I mean, there's, there's no
1: other, it's an absolute privilege, absolute privilege to have these jobs. Do you think your engineering background has helped you?
0: Oh, yeah. I mean, I, I work in a, you know, a business that makes things, you know, in a very sort of, you know, for these customers in manufacturing and the thing about engineering, you know, you are, you're bringing together all of the sort of techniques and tools there are to solve a problem. You know, if it's about making a you know, a new car and designing a new engine, well, you're bringing all of your thinking together to solve a practical problem with people, in teams, and I think, personally, I think that is a fantastic training, a practical application of all the things that you've been learning about, whether it's how people work, whether it's um, the culture of an organisation, whether it's the technology that you're going to use, whether it's the tax issues that you could be facing, whether it's the legislation, whether it's the supply, you've got to bring it together. And say, so what are we going to do? You know, how are we going to solve that? Who's going to do it? How are we going to do it? How do we know we're doing it? And I personally think for business, that is a a, a huge um, training platform. And again, you know, it's a absolute privilege to be able to have done that. How you solve problems, the application of science to everyday problems, you know, harnessing all the strengths we have to improve everyday life.
1: This is your 13th year, I think in the job mm. uh, that makes you one of the very long, top long serving bosses in the FTSE 100. Yeah. How do you feel today as CEO compared to how you did at the start? Do you still approach the job in the same way? Are you still as motivated as ever. Yeah, I mean, in a funny
0: way, when, when you get the job, it's because people really sort of want you and like you and all the rest of you, but actually you're the least qualified to do it. It's now later on and you've learned all of these things. And I think as you've been there for longer, you you should be more, um, you know, potentially um, yeah, more able to deal with issues. You know, the company today is very, very different to what it was previously. You have a responsibility in your role about supporting the organisation. You know, and in terms of marking my own homework, I'll say once you've been there for a while, I mean, we like long service in DS Smith. I think, you know, there's... We like it when people say. I think the average person, their shop floor, everything stays with us eleven or twelve years or something like that. You know, we like that because it's a, it's not straightforward, and the relationships in the company and all these things are, are very important. You can't just suddenly create them. So as long as you're sort of humble, as long as you've got a lot of humility there, as long as you're able to give sort of clear decisions on things, what we do, and be prepared to use all of your knowledge to deal properly and confidently with the issues, then there are benefits to be, uh, to be had from it. And, and I think we've done that, uh, you know, not all the time perfectly, but I think we've done that even when it's been tough. Um, if I look at my management team I work with during COVID, the fact that they've been there for a long time, I think gave us a massive strength. They knew people in the company. Suddenly we couldn't travel, but it doesn't matter. Because we know they've got relationships, the customers, they say they trust Dear Smith. Great, but Dear Smith isn't isn't anything. What it is, it's the people. What they're saying is, no, I trust that person I work with, and they've been here. So it just allowed the company to continue operating very uh, strong because of that knowledge that's in the company, and it's something we really revere. Uh, we, we like that. Obviously, you need fresh blood and yeah, new thinking, but there's an awful lot that comes from you know, people who have worked the right way for a long time and are trusted and respected, and you can really get things done. You know, with that kind of background.
1: Do you think there's a temptation sometimes for businesses to overvalue change and fresh thinking over longevity and people who have a deep understanding of the organisation? Well,
0: having a having a a deep understanding i don't think that conflicts with change at all i think uh, i think in some ways the longer you've been there the more the greater the ability you have to make change i think there's something for companies to reflect on about the degree of risk aversion they have generally you know we are in very uncertain times and that's going to make you can't sit still you have to develop we're going to have to adapt to a very different environment going forward, and that will take, you know, companies to make decisions, and that takes confidence and being being bold, not in a sort of a, a careless way, but backing your judgments on these things. And I do think that you know th- there's a balance, not just in the idea and the confidence but actually being able to affect it in a company. You know how how are you going to make it work? You know, you, you can see it, you can get some new people in, you know, new organizations, company. I've been there before and they come with a great idea, but they don't know how to do it. It's one thing to have a have a strategy. How are you gonna make it happen? You know, what leaves are you gonna pull? What what is that structure? And if people don't always follow you as well. You know, you can get a union saying, well, hang on, what's this about? Or works council, or a customer, or this. But once you, when you earn their respect, then you can explain, and you know, it allows you to get things done. But you know, you can't go to sleep, can you? You've got to keep, um, you know, you have to, you have to keep that humility and keep on uh, doing what you think is right at the company. And we we have our biggest capex program we've ever had, making some investments, you know, that are very, very significant. And that, and that's what we have to do because it is going to, it's going to be a very different environment. Uh, you, you can feel it. You know, technology out there this whole you know, environmental you know, the 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 demands of the final consumer and how they're shopping how they're changing their sort of products etc the whole regulatory environment you know, there's these geopolitical issues there the whole energy crisis etc i mean there are a number of real opportunities there for companies and i and i think frankly the stronger companies will get stronger and the weaker ones will will find it very difficult over the coming years.
1: You've been listening to Business Studies with me, Graham Ruddick. Our producer is Anushka Tate. If you want to listen to or read bonus content from this episode, then please sign up for our newsletter, Off to Lunch. There, you will find business news and analysis throughout the week, as well as bonus content from the podcast. You can sign up at offtolunch.substack.com.